First, I hold my hands out like they're on a steering wheel. Then I look over my shoulder. One, okay, cool guy. Two, three times. Next, oh, I put it in reverse. Meep, meep, meep. Then I take it up and down, up, up, and down. And that, kiddos, is called the forklift. Dance like a dad. It's a great way to make a moment with your kids. Now that's dancing. Sure beats flossing. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Washington, D.C. symbolizes our nation's many liberties, including the freedom to vote. But in a city divided by politics, there is only one campaign slogan that has had unanimous appeal for half a century. Hail to the Redskins! Hail victory! Braves on the warpath! Fight for old D.C. Try our passage for we want a lot more. Beat swamp them, cut them at the point sword. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, gang, let's get this show on the road. How are you? My name is Tim Hanlon, and uh, this is, of course, Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that we do for you each and every week. Uh, into our investigations into what uh, used to be in professional sports. And as longtime listeners of this show will know, uh, we do not shy away from current events. Uh, once it uh, hits our radar, uh, we certainly we talk about things like the XFL, uh, the AAF, and uh, these are timely as today's headlines. And uh, if they fit into this genre we call forgotten sports, uh, we are uh, more than happy to uh, literally and figuratively this week tackle it. Uh, and uh, as you heard in that, uh, I think now cringeworthy clip from 1982, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the now NFL Washington franchise, uh, formerly known as, and hence the uh, qualification uh, and importantly for this conversation this week, uh, the Washington Redskins. And I'm going to be uh, try to be very sensitive uh, and and not use or overuse that nickname too much in this uh, in this uh, conversation with our guest this week, uh, Professor Rich King of Columbia College here in Chicago, an anthropologist by trade. Uh, we're going to get into uh, the issues around why that nickname of the NFL franchise in Washington is no longer. Um, I think there is a uh, a bunch of people out there who kind of don't understand why all of a sudden, seemingly. Uh, this nickname is now no longer. Um, but uh, as we'll learn uh, more in this conversation with um, Professor King in a few moments, um, this is not a new issue. It's not a new issue uh, with the uh, the Washington franchise. <clears throat> it's not a new issue with uh, sports franchises, both pro and collegiate and high school, with the uh, appropriation of Indian slash Native American slash Indigenous people nicknames. Um it is not new even beyond 
the Native American and indigenous people uh, communities either as as things like Black Lives Matter and other groups of people in this country and and, and broadly uh, have been uh, uh, not only uh, er er erroneously appropriated, but um, has culturally uh, become uh, untenable and frankly, uh, not evolved and uh, insensitive. Uh, and I think it's lost on a lot of people, uh, especially as generations move onward. And we get into some of the reasons as to why uh, the nickname in Washington persisted for so long. Uh, after a while, uh, it sort of papers over some of the ugly truths as to why those nicknames uh, were brought about in the first place and what they refer to. People become ignorant over time, over generations. Uh, they just know it as a nickname and colors and in a way to celebrate a team. Um, and, and look, a lot of what we do on this show, frivolous as it may be sometimes, is we go back to not only just not forgetting about things, but understanding why those things became forgotten. Some of them are, are silly. Some of them are humorous. Some of them are actually very substantial and very important and very, um, shall we say, uncomfortable. Um, and, and that's kind of the tone that we sort of get into this. And, I, and I'm not trying to be preachy here, but this is, this is a very relevant conversation as we get into kind of why the new uh, NFL uh, understanding in Washington will now be bereft of the old nickname uh, that has been uh, part of the NFL landscape for, you know, 60 some odd years. Um, and it's an important conversation. And uh, as they say in sort of <laughs> 1980s uh, uh, television sitcom promotional language, a very special episode uh, of Goods Seats still available this week with our, our, our special guest, Professor Rich King, as we talk about the Washington Redskins, and it's probably the last time I'm going to use it by name, uh, why the nickname, why it's leaving and uh, and the background behind it, uh, and the book that uh, Rich wrote about four years ago, just again to show you that this is not an a, an immediately new issue. It's been one that's been percolating for years, specifically with this team, but just generally in pro and 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 collegiate and high school sports. The book is called Redskins: Insult and Brand. It is published by our friends at uh, the University of Nebraska Press. And even if you don't consider yourself a a, a culturally uh, a hip. Uh, 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 you know, an anthropologist, uh, you're not interested in in any of these issues. You're just here for the sports fandom. I, I encourage you to listen very carefully to this episode. You will not only, you'll find it enjoyable, actually. You also, you also learn a lot. And I, I think it's very important. It'll open your eyes as to um, uh, the situation at hand, not only with the Washington team, but, but Native American appropriation of nicknames and, and others and beyond uh, in this, frankly, rather unique or maybe not unique moment in time in our nation's history. Uh, and it's a conversation that I think is important. Uh, and I encourage you to listen to all of it uh, with an open mind and uh, and understanding, because I think you will uh, learn a lot, as I did, uh, coming up in just a few moments. Uh, we want to thank, before we do so, uh, our sponsor this week is uh, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Our pal Dean Mitchell uh, in San Diego uh, uh, goes way out of his way. Uh, to create a, a well-lit and uh, a tremendously designed site uh, that is, I like to call, a, a better uh, version of eBay when it comes to all things historical in the realm of sports history and memorabilia, all kinds of sports, not just football. Will you find Washington NFL franchise previously named stuff there too? Yes, you will. You will find a whole host of other NFL and AFL and XFL, both versions, and USFL and whatever other f football leagues, but not just football, 
all the sports, uh, whether they be in teams that are no longer with us, leagues that are no longer with us, uh, events that came and went, uh, like things like the Tour de Trump that we've talked about, or the old um, Ontario Motor Speedway, uh, et cetera, all kinds of stuff there, all kinds of memories and more inventory coming there all by the week as as Dean and his pals uh, stumble across and or find uh, treasure troves and collections, uh, garage sales. And there's a ton of stuff that's out there sitting sort of hidden away uh, that uh, doesn't make it to eBay. Uh, and uh, and look, you, you get a better sense of what you're buying at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com because Dean goes out of his way to uh, photograph uh, six ways to Sunday, all of the items. So you know with uh, confidence what you're going to be getting. The prices are reasonable and uh, and the stories behind them are also there too. It gives you some context. And again, it's SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Uh, bookmark it early, visit there often. And of course, once you stumble across something or some things, that you, uh, you just can't live without. Make sure that you use the promo code GOODSEATS and get 15% off all of your purchases. Again, sportshistorycollectibles.com, promo code GOODSEATS, and you will enjoy, courtesy of us and Dean, 15% off all of your purchases. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, sportshistorycollectibles.com. And of course, thank you for uh, not only continuing to listen to this show, but in particular, this conversation now upcoming uh, with our guest this week, Rich King, as we talk about the origins uh, and the the future, I guess, of uh, this uh, Washington NFL franchise and uh, the origins, frankly, of why it was even a nickname in the first place and why it's an issue uh, to remove it and to move on and move forward. Uh, here's our conversation uh, about that situation. Uh, please uh, listen carefully. You will uh, hopefully enjoy it and learn uh, as I did. Uh, please enjoy. So obviously, this is going to be an interesting uh, topic. As you know, our, um, a lot of the, the zeitgeist of this show over the last number of years has been kind of around just all things around teams and leagues and uh, related uh, that are no longer with us. And some, th- some of those are, are long historical looks back, you know, into the 1800s when certain teams in baseball sort of came and went. But, but a lot of them are also increasingly uh, current, right? We've had a lot of conversations about... Uh, the coming and going of uh, spring football leagues like the XFL for the second time, et cetera. So uh, anything that's timely and uh, topical that sort of, you know, that we can squint hard and sort of relate to things that are gone or now uh, removed from sort of the, the, the sports world. But this is obviously a different uh, uh, tact, and I'll try to be as uh, smart and uh, uh, intelligent as possible about it. But be- before we sort of get into it, maybe you can uh, – enlighten our audience a little bit into your background just generally uh, to kind of set the table as to your expertise and uh, we'll sort of get into the, the 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 story of the Washington football team's, shall we say, previous name along the way. Sure. Um, I'm a, I'm, I have a PhD in anthropology from the University of Illinois, which is really where my interest in this subject generally began. And by that, I mean um, both the larger question of how Americans use and understand Native Americans and Native American imagery and the more specific issue of um, Native American mascots, why we have them, why people are upset about them, why people defend them um, in such passionate ways. And that interest has led me to write um, 
numerous articles, edit one book and write two other books that deal with questions of, of mascots and representation. And um, the most recent one is on the Washington football team. Yeah, so that's that's a very interesting background. So so literally, you are a professionally qualified, shall we say? So I'll put that to the audience to to go deep on on, on some of these issues that I you know uh, a lot of what we focus on can tend to be sort of in the trivial or the comical, right? But but we also get into very some very strong gravitas uh, related issues, and this is absolutely one of them. But I, I think that's helpful. Um, uh, and a couple of quick side notes. Uh, my uh, wife is a an alum of. Of Illinois, uh, a lot of friends. I live in the Chicago area, um, and it, it's maybe we could sort of kind of start there because maybe you can give a little bit of background specifically there. Maybe it's also a little bit of how you became exposed because uh, for those outside of uh, the Chicago area or Illinois or, or the Midwest, um, it, it is actually a pretty good primer because the mascot of the Fighting Illini uh, is absolutely uh, uh, germane to you know, kind of what we're going to get into with the Washington football team. It is. Um, so I, I, I started at uh, Illinois in 92, and I really didn't know anything about um, the mascot. And in fact, like a lot of people in my generation, I was a Boy Scout. I was an Order of the Arrow. Um, I grew up in Kansas City, so the local football team had my passionate allegiance and was also also had Indian um, connection to, to, to Indian mascots and mascotting. Um, and so I never really had thought too much about, um, Native American mascots. And as a parting gift, as we were, as my wife and I were getting ready to move to Illinois, someone gave us a, like a welcome mat and it said on it, Illinois, where the fun is on the right side and on the left side, <laughs> well, first, it had, I, I could debate that, but that's another issue. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on the left side was this um, caricature of, 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 of what was purported to be an American Indian with a feather sticking out of his head and a, and a very large nose. And it was at that moment I first sort of realized, whoa, there's something really um, deep going on here and something really problematic. And um, when I got to... Uh, when I got to Champaign-Urbana, um, it just, it was, it was really inescapable for me, um, to think about it, right? Because as an anthropologist, one of the things that we want to do is we want to take things that are familiar and things that people take for granted and figure out what's going on there. And it went in the, in the early nineties in Champaign-Urbana, um, nobody really thought too much about the chief. And when they thought about the chief, they thought about um, a connection to a school, game day, um, and really positive kinds of things. And I happened to be attending at the moment that um, Charlene Tears and others were really beginning to push back against the mascot and say, hey, this thing that you think is so great is actually um, really disturbing, offensive, and hurtful, and we'd like it to go away. Um, and it wouldn't go away, uh, really for another about 15 years. And there are still people, um, connected to the school who want Chief Alina Wick to come back. Yeah. And, and, uh, to sort of underline some of that, right. So, uh, a, uh, 
uh, literally a, a chief and center uh, attraction uh, for many years, uh, historically, in uh, the halftime football games uh, presentation, right, where there's sort of a whole dance and a whole sort of kind of thing. And I think it's lost on, on a lot of people, especially those who are uh, not uh, familiar with or related to uh, the Native American story or history or, or, uh, or, or people from uh, those communities. Um, I, I think most uh, folks outside of those uh, of that world kind of just look at it as a quote unquote ceremonial and or festive and or entertaining kind of thing. I guess uh, I, I guess I, I'm curious as to sort of your uh, introduction to that pageantry, which is part of the, you know, the Illinois collegiate lore and and experience and and how that sort of was originally presented in your experience with that. And then how that sort of how you framed it as you sort of got deeper into the situation you were part of. Right. So what's I think what, one of the things that's really um, was really prominent in Champaign-Urbana at the time was the just the, the chief head. Um, and anyone who's um, familiar with Illinois during this period will remember that there's that the chief head was this uh, was a, a artistic rendition of this large feathered headdress um, in the middle of a circle in orange and blue. And that that is was really everywhere um, in town. And I think my first introduction was actually going to a game and seeing, um, this white, this white student come onto the field to really the thunderous adulation, um, of those in attendance at the game and performing what were purported to be Indian dances. Right. And I think that it's noteworthy to think about how the student dressed, right? I mean, the student was in buckskin regalia, has this beautiful plains Indian headdress, is wearing um, face paint, and is doing these really intricate kinds of dances. And if you don't know any better, right, you think all of this is authentic and real um, and perhaps even honorific, right? And over time, and listening to protesters and thinking about sort of the broader question of how is it um, that Americans put Native Americans on display? How do they tell stories about themselves through um, their, their representations of American Indians? That I began to, to see that actually uh, the chief is a lot more complicated, right? And, and the history of the chief is really... Um, fascinating and um, really, it's really amazing, right? I mean, you have um, in the early 20s, a, a student who's in the band um, who proposes that uh, they have this, that they create this mascot. Um, he's an Indian hobbyist, former Boy Scout. And Chief Alina Wick makes his first public appearance in 1926 in Philadelphia at a game between the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Illinois. And at halftime, the student dressed in regalia um, and a student dressed as William Penn uh, smoke a peace pipe, right? And so there's very many different layers of, of storytelling and 
community making that are going on in that halftime performance. And really from there, right, all sorts of, of traditions um, get elaborated at the university around this figure, right, which many people at Illinois will say it was never a mascot, right? It was, it was, um, it was always a symbol, right? It was always something, there was always something bigger and better than just what uh, the idea of mascots conveys. Well, and, and there's there's also a a, a a the derivatives, right? As as yeah. So even even if, and I'm, this is a big if, right? There weren't any, shall we say, uh, inappropriate intentions, right? Uh, and you mentioned the word honorific or, or whatever. Even if it's confused as that, right? Even after that, right? So we could put that on the side for a second. It it, it once it gets sort of ingrained into sort of tradition and or. Um, uh, you know, uh, generations of of memories and and uh, and and nostalgia, I guess, right? It it then you know kind of loses uh, its grounding, even if there was some to begin with, because it just it takes on other sort of uh, concentric, uh, 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 I guess, uh, you know, environments and situations, right, where it doesn't even it, it gets out of control, so to speak, right, and and and. I guess what I'm trying to get to is how um, how do you think it sort of originated? Was it you know, or was it was it just tone deaf? And obviously, there's the stereotypical um, uh, presentation, right? You're you're perpetuating stereotypes, and maybe simplistically so, like that peace pipe thing, right? Which is kids stuff, right? Which is a very simplistic and maybe erroneous sort of uh, situational uh, a concept, but I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is the the origins of it. How it almost feels like it might be more ignorant in its uh, uh, setup than it was conscious. You know what I'm getting at? Maybe. Yes, and I think that I think we can look at it both in a a a, a tiny window and in a larger picture, right? And the tiny window is that in the first quarter, excuse me, in the first quarter of the 20th century, um, white Americans were turning to um, their idea of of Native Americans and Indianness to deal with some of the things, some some sort of uh, social and intellectual crises that they were having, right? There was a sense that urbanization and modernization had alienated white Americans from um, their true selves, from the natural world, um, and maybe even were were feminizing young men, right? And so um, ideas about and images of Native Americans became really prominent in, in sort of organizing and driving forward uh, movements to recapture um, or make great again uh, white America, right? And so you have, for example, Boy Scouts, you have Campfire Girls, you have all sorts of, of camps and campgrounds um, that are directed at youth and socializing youth that are informed by these ideas. Um, and it's not a surprise that you have young people who are socialized in this way, they go off to college, Right? And there's really a big push um, around sports as a way to um, salvage and strengthen uh, masculinity. 
right? And particularly in, in college, right? And so you see at this period all sorts of, of Native American mascots being chosen by high schools and colleges. So in a small frame, right, it makes sense of, as part of a broader kind of movement um, to address things that people were concerned about at the time. In a bigger frame, um, right, we need to, to see what happened at, at Illinois and really across the country during this period as part of a larger um, part of a larger project um, that is really sort of um, creating America and American identity, right? One might argue that one of the central pillars of uh, America's idea of itself comes through um, its capacity to uh, capture and remake Indianness. I mean, even before the country's a country, right, you have the Boston Tea Party. And how is it exactly that Americans express the rebelliousness, that they express um, the uniqueness of America as a nation, right? It's by dressing up as Indians and throwing British tea into the Boston Harbor, right? And we see all across the 19th century that plain Indian is really fundamental to how Americans can really sort of articulate to themselves and others what it means to be American, right? And I think it's through this plain Indian, this taking it, taking of Indianness and remaking it, that Americans not only sort of claim a space, by which I mean really both a cultural space and a uh, geographic space, right? They, they, they not only sort of claim a space, but they create a sense of who they are. And so when we're debating um, American Indian mascots, right, the question isn't just what's, is, is this image problematic or is this dance um, something that shouldn't happen? It's really a bigger question about what does it mean to be American and how do we tell stories about ourselves to ourselves, right? And Indianness has really been central to that. Yeah, I, I think that's a hugely important uh, framing because, in essence, it's for lack of a better term, it's it's cultural appropriation, right? And and you know that that's very uh, deep uh, and and true uh, in terms of uh, things like the the Western, right? In 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 pop culture, right? And and the uh, even the the storytelling around. Uh, Thanksgiving and all the sort of cartoon-ish imagery and/or simple simple uh, simplicity, I guess, of story, um, you know, and and that just again, I think it also then sort of radiates out and um, where uh, it gets, you know, uh, tragic, right? Is it, it wallpapers over quite a bit of history, right? Including how this country has and hasn't uh, uh, accommodated. Uh, the Native American uh, uh, people, right, with these things called reservations and and the constant sort of uh, narrowing and and underfunding and and uh, you know I, I, we can get political and uh, about all of it, but you know people of men, of these generations kind of kind of don't realize, right, that uh, obviously this land was <laughs> appropriated by uh, by. Uh, explorers, right? And the Native American, that's why they're called Native Americans, were, quote unquote, here first. And it it's a very tragic and and um, 
uh, still evolving uh, process by which this country, uh, 200 you know, plus years old, has and hasn't dealt with the Native American population to a point where it's, you know, uh, brings equality and opportunities and all of this. I mean, when you when you use the term and the structure of, quote unquote, reservations, right, it would, it would seem that there's still quite a long way to go when it comes to the original inhabitants of this continent. Right. And I think that one of the one of the, one of the sort of important things to not miss um, and, and when we think about mascots is to say, well, it's just an image, right? Or, you know, it's just somebody dressed up in a headdress. Um, because it, when, when we trivialize what's going on there, we miss the much larger, um, issues, right? I mean, um, how, how Americans understand, um, indigenous people, is really central to how we treat them. And if we, if, as is the case, we walk around with fictions and falsehoods, um, the way that we treat them um, is not going to be grounded in reality, right? And in fact, we might say that the stories that we have told, we have told to make ourselves feel better and to really erase um, the ugliness of the past that, that you refer to, right? And when we engage with mascots, um, it's really an opportunity to open up um, that history and to um, ideally come to terms with it in some kind of productive way. All right. So I, I, let's let's use that as a, as a helpful sort of context then to sort of get into, I mean, literally to, to literally this week, right, in history, right? Uh, we're in the midst of uh, what seems to be to certain groups of people a an all of a sudden issue, right? That that's somehow seems to be manufactured. And again, I'm not saying I agree with this, but but there's certainly people out there who wear this. The all of a sudden, the name of the Washington football franchise, the NFL team, is all of a sudden now off. Not only off the board, but uh, uh, being you know questioned for all of its uh, its legacy and. I guess where I'd like to kind of go is before we get specifically into the into the the Washington situation, they're not. This is not the only team, right? In the at the pro level, and you you alluded to colleges and, and high schools and stuff. Right? It's another issue, but maybe you can expand a bit about this. The idea of using Native American logos and names and references, uh, uh, well intentioned or otherwise, or ignorant or both, um, is fairly common in the history of sports in this country, right? Uh, including current teams in, in baseball and, and other places, which still use uh, some of these uh, brands, shall we say, where well, they are brands. Um, so maybe a little bit of a walk through the sports team appropriations of these things, and maybe a little bit of an understanding of perhaps why this really isn't uh, an, a, an acute issue. It's actually one that's been percolating for, for quite some time, but perhaps for other reasons now has its uh, immediacy moment right now to, to make changes. Right. So at the, at the same moment, <clears throat> at the same moment that you have high schools and colleges um, choosing American Indian mascots, you have professional teams who are doing the same thing, right? So you have, you have Cleveland, for example, that 
who adopts um, the Indians um, in the second decade of the 20th century. Um, where you have later on in the 30s, you have the Washington franchise takes the name that it takes when it's in, in Boston before it moves, it moves to Washington. And by the way, Boston, uh, they were known as they were found as the Braves, ironically. Right. So and maybe right. not ironically, but. Right. They were, they were founded as the Braves. And then when um, when Marshall buys the team, he changes the name. Um, right. And I think it's very much about it's very much about branding and having a distinct a distinct name. Right. And I think it's important to recognize that in all of these cases, um, you don't the, the mascot is not simply um, a way of identifying the team or a symbol around which the community comes together, which both in both cases they are, but they're also highly profitable brands, right? And that's something that develops really, I think, in the last half or quarter of the 20th century, right, is this branding becomes particularly important, right? And so I think it's important to note that um, at least part of the resistance to changing these symbols and practices has to do with how profitable they are. Um, so you can sell lots of, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's a very important yeah, yeah. point, right? Because the, the, now, now you're really injecting another, uh, tangential and, and sy- uh, systemic element to it. There's profitability here, right? Which he just, uh, just augments and, or doubles down on the, if you will, offensiveness and, or inappropriateness, right? Because money now is being made off of these, uh, tenuous, uh, uh original mascots and logos. Right. I mean, it, it's not an accident that. Um, some of the most valuable sports franchises um, in the United States like, have um, Indian mascots and logos, um, and that their fans embrace them in a way that perpetuates some really historic and some really ugly um, kinds of stereotypes and images. Um, and I think an important distinction that I want to make um, between professional and um, collegiate and high school mascots is, is the following, right? Until the DC team just recently dropped their name, um, no, no professional team at the highest level had made a change, right? And part of that has to, must have to do with the profitability, right? So over the last 50 years, since Native Americans and others have said, hey, let's change this mascot. Let's get rid of American Indian mascots. Right? You've seen hundreds of high schools and dozens of colleges who've said, okay, we, we will do that. Right? But we haven't seen professional teams, particularly at the highest level, eagerly embrace that. Right? And so one of the questions is, we have to ask ourselves is, why is that? Right. And I think part of it has to do with who are the stakeholders uh, of these different entities and what kind of pressure can they bring to bear. Right. And in local communities where you have native students and in states where you have indigenous populations who are visible and present, right, you have a, found, a foundation for a political movement and vocal opposition. Um, oftentimes, at a professional level, um, teams opt to ignore or not listen to 
um, or sideline indigenous people because they're such a small percentage of the local community or because they will say they don't represent all Native Americans. They're just a small set of disgruntled people. Right? But I think that that's, that, that is a fundamental difference that's important to note and think about, right, is, is how lack of a uh, lack of a demographic and political presence um, impacts, you know, how um, different entities have responded to uh, the mascot controversy. Right? Um, it's also the case that you have you have regulatory boards um, and entities that govern schools, right? So the NCAA can step in and say, "Hey, we, we, we're going to prohibit um, um, championships." going to schools like the playing the championships um won't happen um at schools that have the following kinds of mascots or state boards of education can say you need to re-examine and or change these kinds of mascots nobody's doing that to, to the pros um right and so it makes it difficult to bring pressure on them yeah, so so that's uh, that's that's a, 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 again another exceedingly interesting point, right? Because you've seen, say, the St. John's uh, now Red Storm, or the the uh, Syracuse University now Orange, right? Without the men part. Um, uh, but I think it's also interesting too. So that's an interesting distinction between why that and the pros. But it's also really important too to remember that um, also around the same time, right? The branding and the money behind those brands has seeped very deeply into the collegiate ranks as well, right? The, these are very powerful and, and remunerative brands too. So it's interesting how uh, that maybe should, and, and maybe is overdue, inform what the pure pros should and could be doing as well. No, and I, I think that, I think that um, where there was resistance in the past around um, American Indian imagery, we, we are seeing... Um, I think we're seeing in, in, in part a kind of um, uh, a kind of um, engagement with a key contradiction of late 20th century American race and racism, right? That is, um, we've, offer, we've operated for a long time with a kind of a black-white paradigm, right, in which there's been heightened awareness and sensitivity about appropriations of blackness and misrepresentations of blackness, right? And one sees in the 60s a whole, from the 60s forward, a whole series of um, changes and rebrandings that happen, right? Not, it's not total, um, right? It's not all of a sudden Americans think um, in a very progressive way about their, their racial history that, that they have um, in terms of, in black and white terms, right? But there's a shift, um, a sensitivity around blackness, right? At the same moment, we don't see that really happening quite the same way with um, American Indians and um, the, their historic experience, right? So even like um, two months ago, when leagues and teams were making statements about um, how black lives matter or how they take the issues of, of racism in sport seriously, right? At that time, for example, you had the DC franchise 
who is um, saying, right, we, we, we believe that, you know, in, that black lives matter. We're against racism, right? And lots of people rightly pointed out, well, if you're against racism, why don't you get rid of your racist logo? Um, you know, by the same token, uh, recently, the NHL had a, a big public demonstration um, against racism that I think the opening ceremony of a game between um, the Chicago team and um, uh, the Edmonton Oilers, I believe. And lots of people pointed out um, this contradiction, right, between uh, so you're anti-racist, but you embrace these problematic um, images and symbols, right? And I think that one of the things that the current moment may be pushing um, institutions and gatekeepers to do is actually uh, confront some of these contradictions right? and get beyond the superficial um, press releases that they've gotten away with for a long time. Um, well, in, so I, in, I'm sorry, in other words, uh, the, 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 uh, the current moments we're living in, right, which I was watching a documentary on 1968 last night, and they're not new, right? The, 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 you know, the, uh, the racial tension in this country, it just continues, everything old is new again. It, it, it's never really, but it almost feels to me that um, what you're sort of suggesting is that it, it's okay. In this case, like w we should open it up to all of racism, right? You could make the argument, as I will, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, the, the, the Native American, the treatment of Native Americans in this country is almost, you could, in quotes, call it the original discrimination, right? Which even goes further back in this country's history uh, to even that of the very uh, long standing and, and painful uh, race issues in this country since the 1700s, right? So, I, but, but I think your point really here is that, that, that it's this, this moment in time that we're living in now is, is not only directly important to the African-American uh, experience and community. But frankly, it, it probably is, is a wise idea for us to, to think of racism in a more general way overall and see where else in our various nooks and crannies of, of society we can now, you know, once and for all kind of address these problems inclusive of that, of the, of the, of the black community. Right. And I think it's a, real, it's a real opening for public conversations to happen, but they're not happening in a uniform way or with the same sort of depth. And so just to, to offer a contrast in how um, different professional teams are dealing with this moment. So the DC team changes its name, but it hasn't really done anything else, right? It hasn't ha had a real soul searching or broader conversation about fan behavior or it's, how fans. It's been most fan more politically corrected, uh, uh, reactionary at this point, right? Right. And so it, it's just sort of like we, we changed the name. And then you have a team like um, the Chicago NHL team that says, um, if you think our mascot's problematic, you don't really understand it, which is very much an old school kind of response um, that one might have heard from D.C. Um, a year or two ago, right? In which it's like, uh, you don't understand our tradition. Um, and if you understood our tradition, you wouldn't ask us to change it. And then you have a team like Kansas City, uh, the, the NFL team in Kansas City, who's been much more proactive in the sense of they're actually thinking about um, what does it mean for our fans to come to games in headdresses? 
um, or, or face paint? What does it mean for us to have this drum ceremony that we use to hype up the team? Um, do we feel comfortable with our fans doing the tomahawk chop? Right? And I think that those conversations um, that the teams are having, if they can find their ways into, into broader communities, actually um, can be, could, be trans, could be transformative. Um, right? So, I mean, if all you're going to do is erase the name, and not deal with all of the, the deeper things that are there, like why the name was chosen or how it was possible for you know, 80 plus years to use a racial slur and profit off of it um, to ignore American Indians. Right? If, if you're just going to erase the name, um, I think that that's really sort of a dead end process that's not going to take us much further. But if um, there are these broader dialogues about um, what does it mean? What does it mean to, to wear a headdress, right? How does that connect up to, to cultural appropriation? Um, how's that appropriation connected up to how um, we engage with Native Americans? What does actual respect for Native Americans look like? Right? Those are deeper kinds of questions, and I'm, I'm hopeful um, that that's something that, that uh, sport media, sport communities can actually push forward. I mean, it's clear that uh, what's going on in the NBA right at this moment is a recognition by um, a set of athletes that um, we have the power to call attention to social problems, right? Maybe they don't have the power to fix them, but they have the power to, to call attention to them and say, let's fix these, right? And so um, the next question is, what is, what's the capacity of sport to actually drive um, positive social change? Where, so where um, uh, so many other questions. So where um, where can and where is the Native American community? I mean, marginalized as it has been over the history of this country. Okay, I, I, I'm just throwing that out there as as a I, I think an arguable fact, but. Um, it would seem to me that um, those teams and those and 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 folks dealing now and grappling with uh, a name or a logo uh, uh, and a, and a quote unquote tradition would want to and should engage with um, representative voices from the Native American community to uh, mutually feel their way through how these situations can change, evolve, be rectified. Um, and arguably not necessarily just now, but it should have been over time. I guess the question in there is, uh, where have been and how engaged have been the Native American communities in these situations and or have they been largely, I'm guessing, rebuffed by these uh, pro and, and even collegiate uh, situations? Well, I think that there's been a lot of, a lot of rebuffing. I mean, I, th I think if one looks at the history of the the DC football team, there's been a lot of effort to, um, to silence that community, to talk over it, to suggest that they're a minority, uh, to use polling data, for example, to say, oh, most Native Americans are okay with this. These are just a bunch of complainers, um, right, to, to fight um, them in court to protect their um, copyrights, to find the most spurious what I, what I call in my book, uh, pretendians, right? 
people who are pretending to be Native Americans um, as representatives of, of the broader American Indian community. Um, and so I think that there's really a history of trying to further that marginalization, right? So you have this marginalization um, of indigenous people, and then when indigenous people try to um, claim equal rights and, and dignity and point out, hey, you're dehumanizing me, um, the effort of a lot of um, organizations has been to further that dehumanization by ignoring them, for example, or um, silencing them or putting together um, committees to study things. Um, I mean, one of the things that, one of the, one of the reasons that the Illinois, Keith Lineswick lasted so long at Illinois is they kept doing, um, they kept putting together committees to review what should be done. Um, and the committees would come back and say, hey, we got people on both sides. We don't know what to do. Um, which is, <laughs> which is, it, kicking the can down the curb, right? Exactly. Right. And so it's sort of like we're trying to figure out a way to maintain the status quo without, without offending, um, anyone. And that is always problematic. So, I mean, and I think it's noteworthy that DC really hasn't engaged, um, with indigenous people in, in a productive way, even now that they're making this change. Whereas you have other teams like Kansas City who um, actually has been working with, with native groups um, and ref using those dialogues to think about what, what are the best practices in our stadium um, and how, how should we going forward um, change in response to what you're telling us. Um, there also are, some people might say, these are really problematic relationships, but there are relationships between tribes and universities in which the tribes endorse the use of the mascot, right? So and Florida State is perhaps the most um, prominent of these in which the, the Florida uh, Seminole tribe has said, um, we accept, endorse, support your use of our name and image um, as your school mascot, right? And um, one might argue that that comes with certain political and economic benefits for the tribe, right? But it's important to note that they actually, those two sides have worked together, um, right, to find something agreeable. Um, never mind what the Oklahoma Seminole tribe says, because <laughs> they're against it, but the Florida Seminoles have said this is cool. Um, something similar, similar kind of thing is, has happened in Utah, in which um, the Ute Nation has said that the University of Utah is fine in how it's using um, the name and, and the imagery. Um, and so we might say, wow, this is really problematic and there's a lot of things here we'd like to dig deep on and think about in a deeper political way, but it, I think that those are noteworthy um, kinds of relationships. So, so my question then, I guess, is, uh, and I think you're sort of answering it, is, is, is there a way, I mean, uh, that almost sounds like a framework, right, that's sort of being inelegantly created, right? You just mentioned two examples that uh, could be maybe furthered and or solidified. Um, because the question I'm asking, I guess, is can, um, can these situations truly be rectified, right? I mean, is it, is it, is it, 
yeah, the names are just, you know, is it completely, you know, cut them cold turkey and f- figure out some other way and, and, and move on? Or are there ways to, and you're mentioning the Atlanta Braves or the Cleveland Indians or, or uh, you know, maybe perhaps could have been done uh, in this Washington uh, NFL team situation, or you're mentioning how the Chiefs have done it. I mean, I, is there a way, is there a framework uh, to make this situation better? Or is it a, you know, let's just, let's just cut cut the crap and move on because this is just beyond uh, offensive at this point. It seems like you're suggesting there could be and should be a framework here. Well, so the framework that I just sort of um, explained with, with Florida State and Utah, I think, is very much the the framework that the um, NCAA encouraged, right, in which the NCAA said um, mascots, indigenous mascots are okay if there's a tribal group that supports them, right? And so that set up a framework in which there is a kind of limited um, consultancy and sovereignty at play, right? In which native voices matter um, in a particular sort of way. Um, and one of the things that happened is this really sort of set off this process, this um, process in places across the country, like Illinois and North Dakota, where uh, administrators and alumni worked really hard to get tribal support that wasn't there, right? And um, you might say, well, great, then those mascots shouldn't, shouldn't exist. And th- that's one kind of framework. I would argue for a more proactive framework, right, in which um, teams and, and fan bases accept um, some responsibility in which they're sort of accountable and engaged around the deeper issues, right? I mean, it would be wonderful, like in my this fantasy world that I'm putting together here, if a professional franchise would actually say, you're right, having our fans come to games in headdresses and face paint and do the tomahawk chop is reflective of a deeper history of racism and therefore we're going to put aside this much money for anti-racist education or we're going to put aside this much money for um, scholarships for Native American students um, right in which there's actual recognition of history and legacy and some sort of um, really concrete practices to engage and reverse that, right? And while part of the framework really has to focus on um, indigenous people, it can't be disconnected from racism more generally, right? I mean, um, in some ways, there's a tension in Kansas City. Here you have Kansas City saying, okay, we're going to engage a little bit with this anti-Indian racism in the stands, um, and you wonder, well, how are you going to then engage with um, anti-black racism that's pervasive in the NFL? Right? It's just really built into um, professional football in the United States. Right? And on a deeper level, and this is, I think, one thing that's easy to miss when we think about um, Native American mascots is... Really, on a deeper level, this is about white people, 
right? And that part of what has to happen, um, right, is uh, white people need to uh, really be schooled in how whiteness made mascots possible, right? And in the kind of entitlements that um, made it not only appropriate, but enjoyable and profitable to use a racial slur to market a professional football team or to cover it in the media. Um, right. And so I would say in some ways, this is a white people problem and these organizations need to be working, um, right. Really taking leadership around, um, issues of white entitlement and white racism. Well, that's especially interesting because you, uh, as you know, I'm a circle on the Redskins just for a second, um, as the team, the um, and there is the first time I, I actually said the name, and I was been I've been trying very hard not to, uh, but there there you go. It just seems I just as a sports fan, it just it it clicked into my head, and I you know there's a there's that educational process that needs to be further uh, uh, made more uh, deep and 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 uh, understood. But um, you know the irony here, uh, one of the biggest ironies here is. The founder of this this Washington NFL franchise, right, was for many years sort of uh, 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 recognized, if you will, as being racist from the get go. Right. He I'm going to say, you know, proud of it, but he was if it was ignorance or, or otherwise. Right. But George Preston Marshall, uh, not the most uh, tolerant. And I use he was probably the most uh, resistant to integration. Uh, in the NFL, there was to the point of having, I guess, what was sort of at the time known as sort of a gentleman's agreement. I mean, he, th th this is just even just an accentuator to the situation specifically in and around the Washington NFL franchise. Yeah, it really is. I mean, here, here's um, a team that was the last to integrate in, in the NFL and only really did so because of, I think, because of federal action. Um, to compel them to do so, um, that was protested when they did so by, by the American Nazi party who had placards outside of um, the stadium that said, keep the Redskins white. Um, right. And I, I just, I think that those two things go hand in hand, right? Anti-black racism and anti-Indian racism go together. They look very different in part because of history, in part because of demographics, right? But um, they're really two um, two sides of a coin. And, um, you know, if we wanted to go explore that really deeply, we would say, you know, how is it we talk about black athletes versus white athletes? And um, how, how do we do different mascots for each of these racial groups? Well, I mean, why don't we have African-American mascots? Right. That's a very it's just something really powerful about how Americans think about African-Americans. Not that I want poppy, these all popping up, but I'm just saying that's something really deep. Um, right. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that, that that's a, a that Marshall really reveals that uh, entanglement. 
So uh, specifically on this, uh, on the Washington franchise, then I, you know, I, I'm not going to, this is not the time to sort of talk about the Daniel Snyder era and, the, but it, clearly this is a franchise that um, and I, you know, I've only learned recently. I, I look, I grew up as a New York Giants fan, so I always hated the team uh, <laughs> for, for other reasons. Right. But it, right. Right, at the time I used to fan of the team and I just couldn't stand Washington. And that's just the way it was as a Giants fan. Right. But um, but but now as an adult and, and and understanding not only this moment in time, but just going back and understanding more uh, about cultural history and, and and all of it. Right. Is uh, it almost makes me doubly and triply steamed um, because it would seem to me that with Marshall and his history, uh, an innovator on a lot of different levels. Yeah. But, you know, not blindly to this this other very systemic uh, racism issue. Well, we just saw the the, the, the statue of him r- removed uh, just a couple of last two months ago, right? Because uh, of, of this, if you will, moment in time. But why is it taking this moment in time, right? This is, this is you know, Shirley Povich was talking about this in his columns in the Washington Post uh, and, and many others were roundly criticizing him for his uh, racist views and, and perhaps even the Native American treatment uh, with this logo and, and nickname. I... I, I it, it's curious to me as to why it's taken so long for this particular franchise situation, given all of that uh, uh, inglorious history. Well, I think that there's there are a number of, of factors that play into why this why this particular franchise took so long to change. I mean, part of it has to do with um, cultural and, and historical illiteracy um, that many folks um, for and against the team um, walk around with, right? That we're not, we're not encouraged really to be critically engaged about history and about race. And because people don't have a language to think about it, they don't think about it, um, right? I think that there's a, a, an odd way in which um, the team name, which is a racial slur, um, really in some ways also gets detached from that history and it just becomes this floating brand. Right. And so when people think about the team, right, consciously, they're not thinking about the slur, right. They're thinking about the team. And as, as you said, right, it's just part of how one thinks about the game and it doesn't have these overtones. And when someone brings those overtones into the conversation, the problem isn't the team name. The problem is the person who's trying to make what, what people think of as apolitical political, even though sports is always political. Right? On another level, it's hard to change these names because people have sentimental attachments to them. Right? I mean, um, the, NFL, the, the DC franchise and its name means something to people in terms of how they relate to their families and their family histories, um, the kinds of personal traditions that they had, a great memorable time that they had with their dad, a spectacular moment um, in their lives. Right? These are all things, these are all sort of effective attachments that make it really hard for people to see um, this thing as bad. Um, and then you bring in personal politics in a particular way and people get really resistant. So if you say, to someone, hey, your mascot's racist, you're in a sense saying, hey, you're a racist. And the worst thing that you can really almost say to someone 
um, in the current moment is you're a racist, right? It's a, suggesting that you're a um, that you're a moral, morally flawed and socially failed person, right? Nobody wants to be um, called a racist, right? And so if that's the starting point of the conversation, conversation's not going to go very far. And I think that um, a lot of these features, um, profitability, sentimentality, tradition, um, and politics all play the role in why um, multiple owners have said, we're not changing the name, right? And, um, you know, I don't know exactly what drove Daniel Snyder to say, we'll never, we'll never, never change the name and you can put that in all caps, right? But I think it really was a combination of factors and not just the fact that he um, was a jerk or just was interested in money. So I, I think uh, that what you just said there is is profound, right? Because um, I, and that this sort of goes into the heart of of live and started this little show three plus years ago is, you know, I, I um, it was somewhat trivial in that, but it's it's I was always fascinated for whatever reasons why teams and leagues sort of came and went and and sort of the histories around that and and a lot of it for me personally and I've seen with the listeners of this show um, tends to be not 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 always but tends to be around one of those sentimental attachment moments or times in one's life, right? For, for, for young, uh, American males, it tends to be, you know, their preteen and, and adolescent years when they somehow attach themselves to this sports phenomenon. And usually the pro team or two, for me, it was uh, this team called the North American soccer league's New York cosmos, right? That came and went. And that, that, that's just part of my upbringing. And, and, but to your point, right? If, if I'm, a Washington, D.C. Uh, area uh, 11-year-old, uh, say, during the 70s, right? Uh, and I am a, become a football fan, and this NFL thing is really taken. I become attached to the team and its name and its logos and all that stuff. And as I get older, I, I there's a hagiography around it. And I almost become recalcitrant or, or, or resistant to, to your point, somebody maybe now with more uh, knowledge and, and wisdom and understanding, uh, questioning the origins of the name, right? And one then probably gets very defensive about that kind of accusation. And and I think that's really kind of the the gnarly realities of 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 some of the the stuff that we're we're talking about here. That that team in particular, and and others generally. No, I think that, I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that I began thinking about. About 15 years ago, I began thinking, in some ways, the mascot controversy is was sort of a leading indicator for really how a lot of the, the quote-unquote culture wars would play out in, um, in the coming decades, in the sense that um, it, the idea of, of changing something that people hold dear that is central to their identity and to their story um, is very threatening and it puts people in a defensive posture and it makes the change more difficult. Um, right. And I think that one of the, one of the, um, I was going to say struggles, but maybe I'll, I'll frame it in a positive way. Right. One of the opportunities of the current moment, right. Is to, would be to say, right. How do we get out of this moment? Um, telling more common stories, 
right? Having more shared vocabulary um, to talk about the world and a deeper capacity to recognize, um, right, where people are at and the histories um, that they live with and, and through, um, right? And if we can find more common stories, right, I think we come out of this current moment much better. Um, if we don't find common stories, right, I think we'll have more friction um, going forward. All right, one more question, and then I'll let you promote, okay? Because this has been uh, illuminating, uh, to say the least, and, and I'm sure our audience is going to uh, uh, be appreciative of it, too. I, I, I hope uh, and, and believe such. Um, I, here's an interesting theory that I, I'll throw out there, and, I, I, you know, maybe there's something to it and maybe not, right? You're referencing, obviously, some of the uh, the business issues that sort of people push back on, right? And maybe that's why Snyder pushes back on, on the, the team name, years ago and because these are businesses right and perhaps even more so now than ever before right i mean pro sports is really you know we're talking about private equity now and billion you know multi-billion dollar valuations and you know the money's only gotten bigger and the business has only gotten more substantial around what you know maybe a generation or two ago was more of a quaint kind of enterprise right um i'm wondering and it's this is probably born out of ignorance more than anything else but it doesn't seem like it maybe if the Native American communities, especially those that are very active uh, in uh, the gaming industry, and there are lots of reasons as to how that has become uh, an economic engine for certain tribes and, and, and the politics around that. I'm just wondering, though, in those situations, perhaps not only culturally, but economically, the Native American community, especially those exposed to the gaming industry and deep into it, might actually have, interestingly, some more solid leverage now, uh, especially when you think about pro sports and now the ad, the advance in the United States, at least finally, perhaps, uh, betting and gambling uh, in and around sports. Um, I, I, and maybe it's, a, it's an imponderable at this point, but I, it feels to me like in those situations that maybe there's some not only cultural uh, agreement, if you will, and understanding and mutual uh, 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 coordination but maybe economically too, in a weird sort of backhanded way. Right. I mean, I think that one of the um, social and economic drivers, um, often where Native communities and white communities um, come together, right, is where, where, there's, a, where there's a mutual um, shared interest. Right. I mean, so if you think about Florida State, one might argue. The reason why this works so well is you have um, a tribe that needs a certain political and economic needs, and you have a university and a state that needs this or thinks it needs this image, right? And they converge at a particular kind of place. And we might say, right, that in some ways that might be a different approach to thinking about um, politics and social issues is to think, you know, where is it exactly these interests converge, right? As opposed to um, having this binary of here's the Indian side, here's the white side, right? It's where's, where's, the, where's the convergence and how do you get there? And I would say part of how you get there has to be um, working through um, the histories and legacies and really having um, dialogues, right, about those interests. Um, and takes it takes a lot of time. Right? I mean, there's a lot of built-up mistrust. 
Um, there's a long history of outsiders coming in and just getting taking what they want. All right, so it will take a lot of time. Right? But I think that there's um, something really positive that comes out of those um, engagements. And I'll leave you with one of those those positives, right? which is um, the relationship between the Spokane Tribe of Indians and the Spokane Indians minor league baseball team, right? And through their dialogues, they came to the realization or they um, agreed that there's something good about this team name, Spokane Indians, right? One, it refers to the team and the community loves their team. On the other hand, Spokane Indian also refers to the tribe, right? And the tribe kind of liked that as well. And so when they talked, they decided to redesign the, the, the uniforms of, of the team, right? And so now the team's uniforms are written in, um, in Spokane, right? They're written in, in a Salish script, right? To say Spokane Indians, right? And so you have this, this convergence in which um, particular kind of visibility and identity for the tribe matched with um, the identity and visibility of the team and community, right? And to me, that's a, a really positive, productive place in which respect and sovereignty is going both ways. Well, I look, this is, I, I appreciate all of this and uh, uh, truly uh, 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 well-spoken and, and, and well um and well put and, and, and illuminating for me, uh, but, but I, and I hope to continue to, to be more um, uh, increasingly, increasingly knowledgeable about this. And frankly, we, this is a, you know, like a lot of things these days, this is, this is one of, of a number of very significant moments in time, right? This is the documentary footage is being created now, uh, you know, for, for, you know, the, the, the generations to come. Um, let it give us uh, give our audience uh, uh, an update on uh, this current book that you have. You've got a few other ones out there. I noticed uh, the Team Spirits one as well. Uh, but uh, tell us uh, about the book uh, currently, uh, and maybe what else you might have percolating in and around it, especially given uh, the acuteness now. Uh, this is after what six, four or five years of of your your book coming out, right? Right. So my book is is an effort to understand. Um, the origins of the DC football team and how over time um, it sort of became a symbolic um, nexus and a commercial um, brand. And to sort of say, you know, how, how did, it, did, did this take shape and why um, over 50 years after Native Americans began protesting, um, has it not changed? Right? And, and to explore questions, I have a chapter in there on, for example, on sentimentality. Um, I have a chapter in there on um, entitlements and appropriation. Um, I have chapters thinking about what does it mean if we just change, um, if we just get rid of this team name and everybody, all the other mascots stay the same, does that make a difference? What kind of difference does it make? Um, my greatest fear has always been that we would change the D.C., um, football team name and everybody else would go on as if um, nothing had happened, right? And we wouldn't really engage the histories um, and the legacies, right? Um, I 
haven't I don't yet have a new new book, but I, I do have several um, articles and chapters towards a book that are thinking about um, really, I guess, really some of the complications um, or complicated ways that um, Indian mascots travel. Right? For example, why are there Native American mascots um, in in Europe, um, and how are they different? How do how do they work differently than mascots here? Um, what does it mean, um, or or how has the controversy played out in a Canadian kind of context? Um, and also thinking about um, other kinds of mascots that we don't think about that that really are reflective of, um, I guess, the, the broader broader history of America, right? I mean, what does it mean to have a team called the Cowboys? How's that team been represented over time? Or what does it mean to have a team called the Patriots, um, right? In which, clearly, Indianness is not the issue, but there's something, there's some history that's being harnessed and glossed over there that's worth thinking about, right? So I'm still thinking about the stories that our symbols tell. All right. Uh, our thanks to the professor. Uh, I think this is a, a fascinating uh, topic, an important one. Uh, I learned a lot. I hope you did as well. Uh, I, uh, I encourage you to uh, uh, keep abreast of, uh, of not only this situation and as we will, um, and there will be other uh, conversations, I think, to, uh, to be had. And, and uh, we are more than happy to, uh, to continue to have them uh, as they relate to uh, perhaps other teams and situations and leagues or whatever uh, who might uh, come to the realization that um, uh, the nicknames, if you will, and the uh, misunderstandings or the misappropriations of uh, those heritages uh, of the past uh, do not square with uh, the realities of today and the future. Uh, the book, again, is called Redskins, Insult and Brand. Uh, it is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. Um, it is a uh, it's a it's a uh, a very uh, accessible read. Um, I think it's well worth your time. Uh, it will open your eyes, and it's not just, frankly, like I said before, about the Washington situation. But you know, if you're a fan of the Cleveland Indians or the Chicago Blackhawks or the Atlanta Braves, uh, or you know any of the other teams in in the realms of of Native American uh, nicknames. But also just generally, there are, there are a lot of other um, marginalized communities out there beyond even just that, and uh, that uh, arguably have nicknames that have been similarly misappropriated. I think we're, we're in an important time right now where um, we can uh, feel comfortable in, in opening up the conversation around all of those situations and, frankly, right some of the wrongs that have been long festering and uh, have been either ignored or pushed back or worse uh, as Rich and I talked about, have been economically derailed because these are big businesses and logos now. And that, that's not an excuse. Uh, as a matter of fact, it makes it worse, um, we would think. So, you know, whether you're a fan of the Washington NFL franchise or not, uh, and or don't fully sort of uh, grasp why all of a sudden it seems now that the, the team nickname is, is changing, <clears throat> I would argue that um, uh, if that's your situation, uh, there are uh, views to be made now because uh, how that team goes forward and how its history looks and how it encompasses and, and perhaps 
um, collegially and um, complementarily uh, works with the Native American community perhaps to uh, more rightly uh, remember that history and celebrate it in, in an appropriate way. I think the time to, uh, to help that process is now. Uh, it is uncertain whether the current franchise uh, is capable, will be capable of, of doing it properly. I mean, I think, you know, uh, eliminating the name now as, a, as an immediate move is smart, but uh, there's a lot more that has to now follow through. And uh, the time where that follow through is uh, uh, going to be defined is now. So um, if you're upset about it uh, and want to make it right, now is the time to kind of jump in and, and try to make it right and, uh, and help perhaps that organization do so. Okay, I'm done preaching, but I appreciate your listening. Uh, this is just uh, one of many, many, many topics, uh, and we do get frivolous. So don't worry, friends, we're not going to get all sober on you every single week. But uh, when we need to, we will, uh, as we did this week. Uh, let's see. How about social media? Yes. Why not follow us on social media? Why don't you? Uh, we're on Twitter at uh, Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find a Facebook page devoted to us, too. Just search up uh, Good Seats Still Available. You'll find that there. Uh, our website, of course, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Uh, that's where all of our old episodes can be found. Uh, you can share them and download them, stream them, do whatever you want. Uh, you can also find our uh, email link there, but uh, you can also do that directly at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And of course, while you're on the website, just search around. There is a little newsletter that you can subscribe to, too, and we give you a little tip sheet on what we're going to be talking about uh, that uh, coming week. Uh, just enter in your email address and uh, push send, and uh, you will be added to our little insider list. Uh, pretty simple to do. Thank you, of course, to our pal Jerry Payne down in uh, Metro Atlanta. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence. Again, Audio Excellence was delivered this week. We appreciate his efforts as we do each and every week, and he's been with us since the beginning. So uh, a hearty uh, a renewed thanks again for uh, sticking with us all this time, too. And uh, thank you, uh, our great listeners, for um, sticking with us. We continue to add new listeners to the uh, to the pile each and every week. Uh, we are in the... Uh, hundreds of thousands of listeners and shows and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's fantastic. It's uh, there's seemingly no place on the planet that we haven't yet touched with the possible exception of Antarctica. Uh, but I'm not sure that the servers there accurately represent any downloads that might be occurring there. But suffice to say, six continents for sure. Uh, and um, we just uh, love all your, uh, your input. We appreciate your uh, passion. Uh, and your suggestions and uh, plenty more good stuff to come and a little bit more frivolous and more fun for sure. But again, those sober and uh, topics and those important topics too, we won't shy away from those either. And uh, we appreciate your uh, giving a listen for this week and all weeks as uh, we bid you a fond adieu. Uh, thanks again for uh, your, uh, your listenership and uh, we'll see you next week. God willing, take care everybody. Bye-bye.